You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. For someone to explain. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Alright, welcome to episode number 14 of the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer. And joining me today is Stephen Lewis. Stephen is the Director of Rugby Operations for Pro Rugby, a professional rugby competition set to launch in the United States this year, and it's been sanctioned by USA Rugby and World Rugby. Uh, Stephen's a World Rugby Level 3 coach and was the USA Rugby Coach of the Year in 2014. uh, He has a long history of coaching in the US with multiple roles at the elite level and with his club Old Blue RFC in New York City and even coached the Nigerian national team in the 2012 Africa's Cup. Uh, it's a pleasure to have him on the show, so welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Yeah. Um, so, a uh, bit of information on your backstory. So, quite diverse there with uh, roles in North America and uh, Africa. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, like, the kind of the last decade? Yeah, well, I'm from originally, originally from Scotland from yep. Glasgow, so I had a sort of playing background there, and I emigrated to the States at 27. So most of my coaching um, knowledge and experience has been here in the United States at yeah. various levels. Um, moved to New York about five years ago to coach Old Blue, yep. which is one of the sort of premier clubs on the East Coast, and then actually took a job in uh, West Africa for a couple of years, and while there... Uh, ran into the people running the local union who uh, tapped me to sort of be head coach for their 15s and 7s program in Nigeria. Oh, great. Which was certainly an experience. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> on and off the field. Yeah. Oh, we'll jump into a bit of that uh, in a minute. Um, yeah, so, so main, and you had some roles with uh, USA Rugby as well? Uh, not specifically with national teams, no. But I, I have been involved with the development of this sort of elite sevens program they've instituted what they call olympic development academies yeah um so they've really grown in the last two or three years i run the one in the northeast new york city and that's definitely contributed to the sort of resurgence of um the eagle sevens program on the on the international circuit yeah absolutely and there's there's like six or seven across the country is that right yeah it's about four i think a fifth one started in utah okay but yep fantastic okay so um I'll just talk a little bit about you you as a coach before we get on to Africa and pro rugby. Um, how would you describe your, your style of coaching? Um, positive. Yeah. And I think uh, I've changed over the years. You develop as a, <laughs> as a coach just as you do as a player. Absolutely. I think we're dealing with a different generation of players. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're oversensitive, but they're a little sensitive. Yeah. So I think you have to, you have to adapt to that. Yeah. Um, and I think at the end of the day, you get more flies with honey, you know. Yeah. There, there comes a point you can't sugarcoat it and you have to tell the truth. But I, uh, I've, I've sort of turned a, a lot more towards positivity in coaching. Yeah, it may as well. I had that same kind of um, evolution as well after a year and a half into coaching and looking at guys and realizing how I was treating them wasn't, wasn't getting the best out of them. So, yeah, I think, I think we all go through that a bit. Yeah, I think one other point on that, though, is it... it really depends on your coaching environment. I mean, obviously the, the preferences for player-centered coaching where you're trying to elicit the correct response from players. Yeah. I think that's good in a professional environment or a full-time environment, say at a college, 
Um, unfortunately, most coaches in the amateur game labor in a sort of twi- two nights a week yeah. scenario where you really have an hour and a half to get through what you want to get through. So it, ha- it has to be a bit more prescriptive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, yeah, and so what are, what are some of the, your favorite areas of the game of coach? Well, I've really enjoyed um, – well, typically I've been a backs coach. Yeah. Uh, that's what I, I played and that's what my specialization was before. Yeah. Head coach. Uh, but of late, I've really enjoyed coaching sevens. The last two or three years, I've, I've sort of um, focused a lot more on sevens and really that, enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, I, I, I dabble in it a bit with my high school team, but it's not. Um, I'm still not uh, 100% sold on it. But, uh, yeah, the, the little bits of coaching I do in it, I really enjoy for sure. And what about um, – so the Nigerian experience, that sounds, uh, that sounds pretty amazing. What, uh, how, how was that for you and how did that help in your coach development and um, – you know, just a general experience. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that was coaching in the raw. I mean, you had mm. zero, zero facilities, zero resources, zero support. Um, all you had was the enthusiasm of players. And, yeah. You now that, that motivates you as a coach, um, irrespective of where you are, you know, when you get a good response from, from the guys. So it, w- it was um, fascinating from that point of view. We went to Botswana. We went to Morocco. We actually just missed out in the Sevens World Cup. We lost to Tunisia by... One score. Oh, shattering. Uh, we would have been in Moscow. Oh, wow. So that was that. Um, in terms of a coaching experience, you were dealing with three sort of distinct groups of people. You had, I uh, won't get into too much of the internal politics in Nigeria, but you had English-speaking Yoruba and Igbo players. From yeah. the north, you had non-English-speaking Muslim Fulani players and Hausa players. And then you had a whole bunch of... Um, essentially English private schoolboys of Nigerian heritage. Right. So three very distinct and disparate groups of people you had to meld together. Oh, absolutely. And that was, that was tricky to begin with. Yeah, yeah but I think that would, uh, that would strengthen you as a coach, especially on you know, developing team culture and, and trust and working for, for each other as a team. Yeah, it's, I mean, ultimately, with all these things, it's shared collective experience, right? Mm. People going through something together and coming out the other side a little tighter. Okay. Oh, great. All right. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And um, yeah, it, it, it's hard to imagine what kind of setting you would have been in. Um, all right. On to pro rugby. So, what, what's a for those who you know are not North American based or haven't haven't heard much about it? What's a, what's a general description of pro rugby and and what what are the kind of goals uh, for twenty sixteen? Pro rugby is the uh, first professional rugby competition in the United States. Uh, it's fifteens, and it'll be kicking off in April. Uh, looks like we'll be kicking off with five teams this first year. Yeah, that's great. And they'll be playing a shortish season, 12 games only really from sort of mid-April through to the end of July. Mm-hmm. As it takes into account some of the international test windows and commitments yeah, yeah. that Eagles have. So it's the first time around for the States. So, you know, we'll be putting 120 young American players in a professional environment for four and a half, five months of the year. So it's a terrific opportunity for players. It's a great way of growing the game within the United States, and it should obviously have some uh, beneficial impact on the national teams as time goes by. Yeah, well, I think I think the World Cup was definitely, uh, you know, that showed for both the USA and Canada in terms of the players who are in the daily training environment compared to those who are still in the amateur setting. Um, I think it's, it's crucial that there is that North American uh, professional environment. Yeah, I mean, you know, both U.S. and Canada have improved, but so has every other country, and they've been mm-hmm. 
just slightly more. Um, I think some of the U.S. performances were pretty good in the first 50 minutes, 60 minutes. Yeah, so yeah. That's that's a factor. Professional environment changes. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, what what kind of squad makeup? How how big will they be? And uh, obviously, you'll need like a. You you probably want some foreign players, but not too many. Is there uh, what's what's the rules for those those kind of numbers? Sure. So it's uh, no rules. Um, yeah. It's a single entity league. So all players and coaches are centrally contracted through. Head New York office, which is the headquarters. Okay. And assigned to teams. Yeah. Um, for this first year, the bulk of the players will be domestic American players. Mm-hmm. That's partly the time crunch and partly visa issues. Yeah. But we will have a smattering of experienced international players, probably two or three per team, who will be there to put bums on seats, but also, more importantly, to model good professional behavior to, you know, a group of young guys who haven't been in that environment. Yeah. yeah. So we want them to lead by example to on and off the field practice game time all of the above just be good, good citizens okay yeah great and um what the locations how were they chosen were they basically looked at geographically or was it where are the centers of rugby in the u.s or a bit of both yeah it's a bit of both and actually it's really venue driven yeah um so we we know where we want to play mm-hmm. but this first year it's where we can play and uh, by that, I mean World Rugby is introducing Regulation 22 on the 1st of April, which is a new standard that they are demanding of artificial turf fields. Right, yeah. And unfortunately, that renders most fields in North America non-compliant. Mm. So we've actually had a bit of a problem finding appropriate venues on the East Coast. Okay. Um, so the first year, it's going to be heavily um, Western-focused. So three teams, California. Um, then one in the Rocky Mountains, and then one in the Midwest. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. Yeah, the the, the surfaces. I think. What's the name of it? Is it? Um, what's the specific uh, astroturf that they they want? I can't remember. Well, the, the, it's field turf. Well, they have a couple of different preferred providers, but um, it's it's now rugby specific, mm. and it's it's a problem that they've got to address. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'll be the challenge and. I suppose uh, re- reaching and growing the game in uh, in the U.S. and reaching out to a wider audience, um, TV is important. Is there what's what's the plan for year one with uh, regards to broadcasting? Yeah, um, I think it was one of the big mistakes of the, of the World Cup in terms of the fact you had a country here where we should be promoting the game and evangelizing, mm. and you had to you had great difficulty seeing a World Cup game. So basically, uh, you had to subscribe, overpay, or go down to the local boozer, you know, and uh, try and catch it there. Yeah. Well, in mature markets where you don't need to promote the game, it was free over the air. So I think World Rugby, they missed a, they missed a trick there. So because of that, we understand that if we're going to break through to non-rugby, the wider American sports community, we need to get the product or the game in front of them. So our plan is more non-traditional media, and it's to every game will be live streamed, every game will be available yeah. free. Um, we do have some interest from network TV, but uh, the bottom line is we need to get it in front of people without it costing them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think if you look at the, the the Australian NRC model there, in year one, they, they did exactly that. They streamed the bulk of their games, and Fox Sports, I think, picked up one game per round that they did a delayed telecast on. And now um, that in year two, that 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 moved into more games being telecasted and still every single game live streamed. 
Well, yeah. Yeah. Have you have you looked at other programs uh, around the world and like kind of tried to model off that, or are you, you you looking at the USA as being more? It's a more unique environment, and you've got to make it fit fit to the US. Well, from from a rugby perspective, obviously I'm uh, pretty aware of what's going on, and and look to other countries for examples. But you know, the onset of professionalism in most countries was not exactly uh, a bed of roses. Yeah. So, We'll also make our mistakes, yeah. but we have to recognize that we're establishing a professional game here in a country which is not a rugby country Yeah, um, and is a specific sports market. It's the biggest sports, sports market in the world, but it's specific all to itself. Yeah, yeah, no, it's got a, it's got a, you can get lessons from somewhere, but it's, it's definitely going to be a unique, a unique setting. Um, you know, I suppose, I suppose 2016 hasn't even started yet, so it's tough to talk about 2017, but... Yeah, perfect world. What would you like to see? It? How would you like to see pro rugby grow over the next few years? Well, I think one of the um, structural constraints to remember is uh, where are the players coming from? Mm-hmm. So if we have five teams, we need 150 players. Yeah. If we have, you know, if we expand it to 10, you need 300. Are yeah. there 300 players? And the answer is no. Mm. So what we need is measured um sensible expansion which is takes account of the existing player pool so we're really going to start developing players and only then can you really start expanding so to my mind in you know three years if we're up to eight teams and it's a sustainable league with decent crowds yeah that's all good yeah yeah that's great um and there was there was talk of um you know potentially expanding into one or two canadian teams or one canadian team is that still um a, a goal for pro rugby uh, still under consideration. I yeah. mean, that offer was out there. Rugby Canada elected not to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, we're not doing anything there without their uh, blessing and sanction. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then again, there's plenty of markets in in the states. You know. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, what about what about the style of rugby? Is there any kind of push for a certain style of rugby that that pro rugby wants wants to be shown to the spectator, or is it? Or is it left up to the the individual coaching staffs of the franchises and the profiles of their team? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be it's left up to the coaches. There's no sort of prescriptive command from on high saying this is how you have to play. Um, obviously, as time goes on, different teams will develop different identities. So, for instance, you know, and that's just the nature of geography and climate. So, yeah. East Coast teams tend to be more forward oriented. Uh, tend to be more European, perhaps. Mm-hmm. West Coast teams tend to be, um, you know, it's it's a faster game and there's, there's more Polynesian influence. Yeah. Um, so this, th- th- that sort of develops naturally, organically, I think. Yeah. We are. Okay, that's great. Um, and, and what about coaching staff? How's how's the selection process happened for that? Um, how have coaches been, um, you know, selected and is there is there a big push to to develop uh, USA based uh, local coaches? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're a separate organization. We're privately owned, privately funded. So we're, we're not uh, in bed with USA Rugby in any way, shape or form. Obviously, yeah. we want to cooperate. We have a good relationship with them and we want to keep that. Um, but in terms of coaching, you know, this league is an opportunity for American coaches as well as it is for players. Um, so, you know, we've quite a robust response to coach applications domestically and from abroad. And I believe we have got a good bench and mostly domestic, mostly American. I think it's their opportunity and their chance to um, 
have a crack at this. Yeah, yeah. And what about uh, like there's a, especially on the west coast, there's a very strong university. Uh, um, well, all over. If you look at the sevens, um, university rugby. Um, how, how have the universities been kind of linked with clubs, or is there or is that something moving forward? You want to form relationships with the coaches and staff at universities? Yeah. Well, I, I would say collegiate rugby and high school rugby in the US is is growing mm-hmm. absolutely in terms of participation and quality. A lot better coaching. I think the club game, the men's club game, has somewhat stagnated. Um. So perhaps you know this is a this is a, a jolt. This might reinvigorate that. It might yep. provide a sort of um, opportunity for that that part of the game to to reignite. In terms of relationships with colleges, we are not going to actively recruit collegiate players yep. until they are graduating senior year, um, because we don't believe um, that one or two years of pro rugby trumps. Your education, so absolutely. Yeah. Mindful, they need to get their degrees first, and then if they can handle it, and they're graduating their senior year, then that's okay. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. Especially in a in in the current North American environment, um, yeah, they're they're going to be, you know, they need a job. They need uh, need to have a life after rugby. And yeah, yeah, yeah. first, first, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And what about um, I, I suppose if you look at look at the models of say. You know, the European countries say Ireland. Um, most most major clubs will have an academy underneath it that that um, creates a bit of a pipeline of of players coming through it. Is there is there is that kind of moving forward a, a goal of uh, pro rugby? Possibly. Yeah. Um, so this first year, obviously, yeah. no, no time or bandwidth. But moving forward, so where did the, where's the player pool come from? Mm-hmm. So again, we need that strong club competition. We need. The collegiate game producing more players. Yeah, we need those Olympic development academies identifying players early and developing them through sevens. Yeah, um, so if all of those constituent parts do their job, um, perhaps we don't need it. Yeah, should yeah. they not, we're going to have to step into that void and and develop our own players, obviously. Yeah, and again, that depends on the 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 U.S. landscape compared to other countries' landscapes. It's not yeah. going to be identical. So, so people wanting to find out more about uh, pro rugby and uh, where they can watch it and where they can support it and even athletes uh, and coaches looking to get involved, if possible, um, what, where, where could they be directed to? Yeah, so it's on Facebook. It's Pro Rugby North America is where you would find it. Okay, great. Um, that's the best bet. We're you know, developing the website, but that's not the primary repository of information right now. Yeah. Um, and as I say, next weekend... Uh, actually, this weekend is the National Development Summit in San Francisco, which is kind of like the annual conference of American rugby. Okay. So we'll be able to make some announcements there and immediately thereafter. All right, fantastic. I'll put those uh, those details up on the website and um, on the show notes as well. And if someone, uh, if people wanted to get in contact with you about um, about pro rugby, what's the best way they could do that? That would be at my email which is steve at prorugby.org okay no problems so I'll, I'll put that up on the show notes as well okay well this is a quick one because you're, you're a busy man and uh, <laughs> you've got a, a professional rugby league to to create in a in an area where it's never been done before so um we'll 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 close with our usual four questions um first question i always ask is that as your kid growing up who was your who was your favorite player favorite player was uh west of scotland Glasgow, Scotland, British Lions prop, Sandy Carmichael. Okay. First main coach. 
Uh, that's an interesting choice as a as a backs coach. Uh, just more a measure of the man, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, um, Local legend, that type of thing. Oh, okay. So he's from your your part of the world where you grew up. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And what what about now? Who's your who's your favourite um, current player going around? Yeah, I kind of like Stuart Hogg and Finn Russell. I think they're both a new breed of young Scottish mm. backs who've got a bit of adventure about them. Yeah, I agree. I I, I really enjoyed watching them at the World Cup. Um, definitely think Scotland was hard done by in the in the quarter final against the Wallabies. And well, let's not go there. <laughs> no, I've, I've moved on. Um, but uh, both those players, I, I really like as well. They're, they're Stuart Hogg. Um, I thought he was unlucky with the with the Lions. I, th- I would have liked to have seen him get more more game time when they came to Australia. But yeah, he's they're both very very high quality. Okay, and what about uh, your favorite favorite um, high profile coach uh, going around right now? Who 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 do you like? Mm, that's an interesting one. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't think there's one. I think you you pick up on different things from different people. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. I, I would be. I'm disinclined to give you one name. Okay. No problems. No problems. Um, I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, what Vernon Cotter's doing with Scotland. I think uh, I think Scott, uh, the Six Nations will be a, a great uh, litmus test to see how far he's developed them from uh, World Cup. So, yep. yeah, Stuart Byrne, the inscrutable Mr. Cotter. Can yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> what is he thinking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a tough book to read, that one, I reckon. Yep. Um, okay, and who's a, who's a grassroots coach uh, who's deserved a, deserves a shout-out for the work they're doing that may not have uh, the pro profile of uh, some of the pros? Sure, I would say in this, uh, in this neck of the woods, I would go for a, a guy called Dom Waring. Okay. Who's uh, with Old Blue, and he's with the Northeast New York City Sevens. I think he'll be one of the top sevens coaches in the country in short order. Oh, that's fantastic. And okay. he's an Englishman, so there you go. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm uh, up an Englishman. He must be good. Non-biased, yeah, yeah. He must be worth a shout-out. All right, fantastic. All right, well, it's been short and sweet, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited. Um, you know, being based in Canada, I'm excited that there's, uh, you know, uh, professional rugby coming to this part of the world and really, really going to be watching on in interest. So, you know, I know you're a busy man, and thanks, thanks a bunch for taking some time out of your day for speaking to us. Terrific. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yep, no worries. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com. Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.